This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. The first degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. First degree. The first degree. You see it on the news. You see it on the paper. You see it on Facebook. These things are supposed to happen in movies, not in real life. I wish I knew how we got to that point. You know, how how did he end up on that street in Portland in 2008 shooting someone? I can't, like, make that match in my brain with the person that I knew. How did he get to that point? I wish I knew that path, like, what, what the series of decisions led to that. Welcome to The First Degree, the true crime podcast that you might end up on. My name is Jack Vanek. I am sitting somewhere in the universe, away or far or close to Alexis Linkletter and Billy Jensen. You'll never know. And today... Honestly, who's to say? Who, who knows? You know, we're keeping it mysterious. Proximity is a construct. It, it really is. Yes. It really is. So today is a very special day. I don't know. Maybe you clicked on our podcast to listen to it and you noticed that we have a brand new logo where we're looking sexual. We're looking hot. We look like we're in like a thruple and yeah. it's just chic and amazing. And that is because Alexis. Well, our podcast, The First Degree, has a new home. We're now at Stitcher. Yay. Yay. We're very excited to be part of the Stitcher family. So that's where we are now. Yeah. Yes. And we have we have so much stuff uh, coming along the way. We actually did not one but two photo shoots with mm-hmm. multiple outfit changes. <laughs> I'd had to keep up with these two. And so, you know, our Instagram is going to be different. There's going to be a lot more pictures of us and a lot, a lot of fun stuff. And we've got um, a lot of great content coming to you. Yeah, we may or may not be working on a Patreon, and we may or may not have recorded our first episode for uh, our Patreon subscribers, yeah. which we're going to find a new name for. I will say it, it is awesome, though. It was a great episode. It, or may or may not have been, but it, but it was. <laughs> and the new Patreon show may or may not be called The Second Degree. Yes. yes. So we're oh, really proud of that one. You know, people make fun of us for having like way too many slogans and puns and things, but you know, I really live for it. So Mm -hmm. same. The second degree coming your way soon. And it's going to be amazing. It might be one of my favorite episodes that we've ever recorded of anything. Honestly, it was really good. I'm proud that we did that. Like we did a good job coming up with a new angle and a new take on some of this content. So I think you guys will be excited. Yes. Yes. And it's coming soon. Stay tuned. Um, Until then, Billy, what day is it today? All right. Well, today is November 3rd. And it is National Sandwich Day. 
Oh, Dude, sandwiches mm-hmm. are my favorite food. Billy, I know you said that it was a bleak day. Do you, because there's only like four uh, things to choose <sighs> from. All you need is that one, and That's one of it. them is National Eating Healthy Day, and I certainly wasn't going to pick that. No, 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 sandwich no, no. Day National is all Sandwich need. Day, and wow. probably the best time when when we record uh, together when we get those sandwiches from Larchmont. Ooh. That is often when we're in our best spirits. Truly. Um, I, let's go like around the table. And what is your favorite chain sandwich place? I'll start. I don't even know if they're around anymore, but I loved Quiznos. <laughs> Quiznos was fantastic. They had the steak sandwich. They were fi- just so good. And they were like all about the toasted. And then Subway yes. was like, you know what? You're toasting. We're going to start toasting. It's too. not the same. When it's Jack not because the Quiznos. College, when Jack and I were in college and lived together, we would go to Quiznos like every day. Every day, the honey mustard chicken sandwich. But they would like put it through the moving oven. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. that's different than what Subway does. Yeah. But I do miss Quiznos and their honey mustard sauce. There's nothing quite like it. Mm. I like Jersey Mike's. Jersey Mike's for me yeah, too. I and I, You turned me on to them. Yeah. And I, I had a moment for like two years where I went off of Jersey Mike's because I had a soggy sandwich once and I didn't eat it forever. And I am back on the train. I'm actually going to have it for dinner tonight. I cannot mm-hmm. fucking wait. Honestly, you do that though. You get sick of stuff and then because and then you take a break for like five years and then you're back. <laughs> because I overindulge. Because yeah. I yeah. also had it last night and I'm gonna have it again today. <laughs> so so you will ha- have another week of it and then it'll yeah. be over for another and then, yes. and then there'll be too much vinegar on my sandwich once and then it's gonna be gone for good. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Ugh. You're experience oh, well. driven. Until then, Jersey Mike's forever. Um, but I think I don't even do we n- even need another day, Billy? Uh no, there's it's World Jellyfish Day. I love jellyfish. Yeah. They're cute. I always want to, when I see a jellyfish, I always just want to stick some googly eyes on them so I know what, where their face is. <laughs> <laughs> you create the face. I don't have a face. I, so I, I always I, like, forget. I actually to, have a jellyfish to tattoo. <laughs> but it's I on know. my side and I never see it. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, I think that that is enough of that. So let's turn on the lights. And turn up the anxiety. Because this could be you. Is it possible for someone to commit a heinous act and not let it define their entire life? Is true atonement achievable? And what happens when that person tries their best to make up for the act, but no matter what, no matter what they do or how hard they try, it's still not good enough? On this podcast, our stories usually end with the bad guy or bad gal going to jail. But on today's episode, we're going to flip the script and talk about what it takes to get someone out of jail. We begin today's case on June 24th of 2008. The songs Bleeding Love by Leona Lewis and Low by Flo Rida featuring T-Pain were playing on the radio constantly. The movies Kung Fu Panda and Sex in the City were in theaters and Hillary Clinton endorsed Barack Obama for president. And a fun fact, Dwayne Johnson said that he was dropping the rock from his name during this time, but obviously the world was like, fuck that. We're still calling you the rock forever. He's still the rock. Fuck yeah. 
and we can smell what the rock is cooking all the time. Now, the <laughs> setting for today's case is Portland, Maine. The city of Portland has a population of about 66,000 people. It's Maine's largest city. It's the second largest fishing port in New England. And in Portland, there are actually more restaurants per capita than any other city in the U.S. And this comes in handy for all the tourists the city hosts. The Old Port District is known for having this historic feel with these cobblestone streets and 19th century buildings. And it's filled with boutiques and restaurants and bars and nightlife. And it's exactly where our case today takes place. And our first degree for today's case is named Carly. And she grew up an hour and a half from Portland in a rural town called Farmington. Farmington is, it's a small town, but it's a college town. There's University of Maine at Farmington. So there's a little bit of that like small college town vibe, but it's definitely farm country. And like our high school had a snowmobile parking lot if that's any sort of description of what it was like there. Carly attended Mount Blue Middle School in Farmington, and this is where she met Brandon Brown. We were in different, they called them communities or teams. We were on the gold team together, and so we had classes together. And, and he was just, like, right away, you could just tell he was a really friendly and, like, nice guy. It's, like, nice and really chatty, talkative. He actually got, I think, most talkative in, like, our middle school yearbook superlative. But he was just, like the class clown kind of guy, but in a, like a good way. Teachers liked him too. At one point, Carly, Brandon, and their classmates did an exchange program with kids their age from a school in Hawaii. That meant the Farmington students went to school in Hawaii for a week. It was on this trip that Carly and Brandon really bonded. And that's where I think we really started to hang out and become like good friends and would chat a lot. And I just remember him always being nice to me and like you know, thinking how nice that was because I knew I was a little bit of like the nerdy type, you know, and so I, I just appreciated the fact that he did, that didn't seem to bother him. And it's no surprise that with all this time they were spending together, literally going to Hawaii on a trip, Carly started to develop a bit of a crush on Brandon. I have a summer birthday, so he came over to my birthday party in July and I remember like he threw me in the pool and I remember just thinking like, this is so cool. But alas, it wasn't meant to be. And then he moved away. <laughs> so it was sort of like, oh, shoot. You know what they say? They call it a crush for a reason. Carly thought about Brandon every now and then during her freshman year of high school. But when her freshman year ended, she thought about him less and less and less until she stopped thinking about Brandon altogether. And by the time she was in college, Carly didn't even remember her middle school crush at all. Then one day in 2008, that all changed when Carly started hearing from her old classmates. Sort of later high school, I, I didn't really think about him anymore and, you know, headed off to college and I was out of state. But then I remember just uh, friends who were still local were like, hey, did you like to happen? Do you remember this guy? And I was like, no, you know, what's going on? And some of my yeah, friends that were still in Maine were like, oh, you know, do you remember Brandon Brown from middle school? Like he, he shot a guy. Once Carly remembered who Brandon was, she was completely surprised to hear that this guy, who she'd known as being so kind, had done something so horrible as shooting someone down. At what point do perfectly nice people make a wrong turn, ultimately leading them to acts of violence? I wish I knew how we got to that point. I can't like make that match in my brain with the person that I knew. How did he get to that point? I wish I knew that path, like what, what the series of decisions led to that. To answer Carly's questions, you all know the drill. We got to go back to the beginning. 
Brandon Brown attended several schools in different states. As we know from speaking to Carly, he attended middle school in Farmington, Maine. He switched schools and ultimately graduated from South Portland High School. While there, apparently, Brandon was more interested in sports than he was in his studies, and he set his sights on playing college basketball. But those dreams were crushed when Brandon suffered a severe injury during senior year. And this injury is what Brandon would later say caused his life to spiral out of control. The spiraling led to tension with his parents. Brandon moved out of his father's house, and after this, he either stayed with friends or he slept in his car. He started drinking and eventually started selling weed. Along with this new job came a new group of friends, and they were unsavory new friends. And this group liked to start fights with people while hanging out in Old Port, which is that area with bars where clubs and kids like to party. So with these new friends, Brandon's personality started to change, which is common. He became even more rebellious and confrontational and took on sort of a tough guy persona. Brandon had new interests, one of which was handguns, and he bought a few to protect himself from robberies since he was dealing the drugs and all. So eventually, Brandon started carrying a gun with him on his person. And this, you know, sort of led to this false sense of power, which I imagine happens if you have a gun on you. You probably subconsciously take on this, like, don't fuck with me, I dare you type attitude. And that false sense of power is exactly what led Brandon to get into trouble. On June 24th, 2008, Brandon and some of his friends went to a bar called The Cactus Club. And we have a picture of a street view of the Cactus Club right now. And Lex, do you want to describe it a little bit? Yeah, we're looking at, it's all brick. I mean, honestly, Old Port looks really cool, like a cool New England city. It's all brick and there's like rows of bars. So you have to imagine there's a kind of narrow sidewalk on a busy night. There's, you know, college kids. You imagine it's probably packed and you can kind of set the scene for where an altercation could take place. Yeah, And it was around 1 a.m. on June 24th when Brandon's group of friends crossed path with a rival group of guys. A fight broke out. Luckily, the Cactus Club had a bouncer. It's a 27-year-old guy named James Sanders. Being the bouncer, James tried to break things up. But while James was trying to do his job, Brandon pulled out a .357 caliber handgun and shot him once in the chest. When I was growing up, I took French in high school, but I could never get the language to stick. I wanted to be fluent so bad, but it never happened. I just couldn't focus and I couldn't practice enough and it didn't work. But thankfully, there's Rosetta Stone, which is the most trusted language learning program and it's available on desktop or it can be used as an app on your phone or tablet. Rosetta Stone is different. It immerses you in so many ways. And with its intuitive process, you can pick up any language naturally, first with words, then phrases, and then sentences. And before you know it, boom, conversations. Plus, with Rosetta Stone's true accent feature, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the first-degree listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com first. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com first today. 
Okay, so it comes as no surprise that I have absolutely no idea how to cook. I don't want to learn how to cook. It's not really my thing. But when I tried Factor meals, it was a freaking game changer. So Factor's fresh, never frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Yeah, two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great tasting meals. So the first time I tried Factor meals, I was actually blown away because I'm like, that's it. That That's all it is. Two minutes and the meals are so delicious. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every single week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. And you can treat yourself to restaurant quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, ooh, fancy, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Like I said, they're so easy to prepare. I love them. So head to factormeals.com slash degree50 and use code degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code degree50 at factorymeals.com slash degree50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. It's almost summer and the best and most sustainable way to shop for a new season is on therealreal.com. The Real Real is the largest and most trusted source for authenticated luxury resale. It's the only place you'll find brands like Hermes, Cartier, Prada, Dior, Staud, Zimmerman, Jacquemus, and more for up to 90% off retail. 10,000 plus new arrivals land every single day from hundreds of brands you love, all authenticated by a team of in-house experts. Whether it's that perfect wedding guest look, a new summer sandal, an updated beach tote, resort wear for your summer vacation, you're bound to find exactly what you're looking for, plus deals you won't get anywhere else on therealreal.com. Visit therealreal.com and use code FIRST at checkout for 20% off. Terms apply. On June 24, 2008, at around 1 a.m., 21-year-old Brandon Brown shot 27-year-old bouncer James Sanders outside an old port bar called the Cactus Club. Shortly thereafter, Brandon was arrested. At the time of the shooting, James was on active duty with the Marines, where he was a sniper with a reserve rifle company. By 27 years old, he'd already served a tour in Afghanistan. Besides being a Marine, James worked as a bouncer at multiple bars in Old Port, including, of course, the Cactus Club. So we're looking at James right now. I mean, he's all he's got tattoos. He looks like a Marine. He looks like kind of what you'd expect, and he's in great shape. He looks like an active guy. Looks like an active guy. The picture that we're looking at, he's wearing a baseball cap, has a beard, yeah, and covered in tattoos. Like, mm-hmm. I don't even see a part of his body that doesn't have a tattoo on it. So I bet there are a lot of good ones in there. So James was rushed to the main medical center, and it turned out that the single bullet that Brandon had fired had gone through James's right lung, liver, and spine. And the bullet continued and penetrated his left lung and exited out his back. And thankfully, and miraculously, really, James would survive his injuries. Although he was left paralyzed from the waist down, and he would be confined to a wheelchair for the rest of his life. And in addition to the paralysis, one of his legs had to be amputated as well. Brandon was charged with elevated aggravated assault and reckless conduct with a dangerous weapon. He pleaded not guilty, and his trial began in the fall of 2009. So by the time the trial began, his charges had been upped to attempted murder. So according to the prosecution, this wasn't a random shooting. They actually believe that Brandon had an axe to grind with James and shot him out of revenge. 
And this is because apparently a few months prior to the shooting, James had thrown Brandon out of a different club where he bounced. However, the defense argued that Brandon didn't have a grudge at all. Instead, he had shot James in self-defense, essentially, after his head had been stomped on during the fight and James was trying to break it up. So Brandon was scared and fired his weapon out of fear. So in the end, the jury sided with the prosecution, and on November 24th of 2009, they found Brandon guilty of attempted murder and elevated aggravated assault. On February 22nd of 2010, Brandon cried and apologized to his family after he was sentenced to serve 27 years with 10 suspended. And according to Maine House Representative Jeffrey Evangelos, Brandon's sentence was more than double the sentence that the same judge had given in cases where the victim was killed, which is insane. And I don't even know how that's possible. I, you know, I have, I have such mixed feelings about this. Like sentences are doled out pretty arbitrarily. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes that can be good because I think there is nuance to crime and, and accountability and malice intent and things like that. Because I think of the alternative, I think of sentencing automatic sentences sure. based on convictions. And, and those and are unfair too. Those yeah. are unfair too. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's like, but I do think there doesn't, there should be some standard, like some scope where it's like, if you're convicted of this, you're, it's between this and this. And I know that technically exists, but like, why would this guy, Brandon, be sentenced to twice what someone gets if someone's killed? Like, uh, why? You yeah, know? from that judge. Like, what was going on with that judge that day? You know, these judges are seeing tons of cases. And, you know, all it takes is, you know, that that's one thing with our legal system. Even though you have a, a jury of your peers, at the end of the day, you have a judge that's going to tell you how much you're going to serve. Right. And it could be what that judge ate for breakfast. Sure. But another thing, not to get all like meta and philosophical about this, but how do you quantify a punishment for, for losing someone's ability to walk? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how, how did James Sanders quantify what he's lost? Like yeah. everything you would ever walk to do, you know, it, it's so difficult to try to assign a dollar amount or, or a year amount to like repent based on what James Sanders has lost. And I think that's so fascinating about sort of our you know, our, our justice system. So Brandon's conviction was devastating for him, of course, and his family. That being said, like we were saying, the injuries James Sanders suffered were devastating as well. He lost his ability to walk. Remember, this is a young guy. He's independent. He's a Marine. He's into fitness. It's like his life, he's a new person after this. You know, it's devastating. And there's no way to measure that kind of impact on someone's life. Following the conviction, Brandon filed an appeal. And according to the Bangor Daily News, Brandon's defense said that during trial, the prosecutor was, quote, out of line by trying to cast Brandon as a thug and a menace with repeated references to his baggy pants that he wore around his hips. Despite the best efforts of the defense, the Maine Supreme Judicial Court denied Brandon's appeal. And with his appeal denied, Brandon had no choice but to put his head down and start dutifully serving his prison sentence years would pass before Carly would start hearing Brandon's name again, both from friends and from articles she saw on Facebook. Carly, of course, was curious. I definitely went down a rabbit hole looking at some of these articles and about what's going on. And so it seems like since he's been incarcerated, Brandon has, you know, just really committed to try to do everything he can to better himself. Carly's right. Brandon did just about everything right behind bars. Once in jail, he enrolled in an associate's degree program. 
And in a later interview, Brandon said that doing this changed his life. Through reading and interacting with his professors, Brandon found a, quote, level of freedom that he never thought that he'd find in life. And education allowed him to ask questions that he had never asked himself before. Like, what was his purpose in this world? Brandon started to wonder how he could leave prison and still live a meaningful life while contributing to the world. We're looking at a picture of Brandon from when he was incarcerated. He's got a great beard on him. Um, great and he beard. looks, he's, this This was probably from a pro, like positive piece because he's, he looks very like together and nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Again, also that's the, that's the power of perspective, right? Like usually they show people's like mugshots or inmate photos to make them look scary. He looks right. approachable and nice, you know, yeah. um, it helps that he's white. It helps yeah, that he's yeah. white. And I think that's something that we need to highlight here is that like, there are a lot of redemption stories, a lot of people of color and I, you know, this one got a lot of attention, but there are many. Yeah. And we got to keep in mind how the media portrays people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He looks like he could be a barista at a coffee shop. Yeah. He He's looks like a hipster. Big, big hipster He beard. does look like yeah. a hipster. Yeah. Brandon also participated in lots of programs. He volunteered with the prison hospice. He became a certified yoga instructor. And he even started a program where he worked with the local humane society to bring dog training into the prison. After earning an associate degree, Brandon started participating in his most life-changing program of all. And this was one that was focused on restorative justice. And according to the Portland Phoenix, restorative justice programs, quote, force people to listen to the stories that the criminal justice system shields from them. The program makes people question who has been harmed and who did the harm. The program helped Brandon acknowledge what he did to James and how his actions affected not only James and James's family, but also his own family and also the community as a whole. Right. And the ripple effects are immense. And Brandon was really forced to look at the pain and harm his actions ultimately caused. And it's no surprise that Brandon's life changed with education and active programs, because it seems obvious helping an inmate with job search skills, job readiness, and access to education is essential if you're actually expecting to return someone to society. But here's the thing. In the U.S., we hardly perceive prisons as institutions focused on corrections or rehabilitation. The perception, and to some degree, the reality is that those who go to prison are there for punishment. And if they come out at all, they come out worse than when they arrived because all they do is learn how to be better criminals. More than half of former inmates are unable to find a stable job in the first year of their release. And this is a really sobering, sad statistic. Three-fourths of inmates are ultimately rearrested within five years of the release. That's a recidivism rate of 75%. So our prison systems are not effective. And people are going in and learning how to be better or different criminals. And 75% are returning to prison, which is a waste of fucking money. It's shitty for families. It's yeah. shitty for, you know, like... I don't even think they're learning to be better criminals. I think they're coming out with no options. And so they're, they're, they have to be desperate. And well, and they're just trying to survive in there, yeah. really. Every, everything in the prison system, unless you see, and we're going to talk about some things uh, that are bright lights, everything is setting the people up to fail. And it's definitely a system based on, on punishment or it is about trying to make somebody better. Because prison programs are effective. And some prisons few prisons, are at least making attempts at being innovative. Cook County Jail in Illinois is a good example of this. In 2018, they opened a recording studio, a state-of-the-art kitchen, and an art studio in the basement. 
The goal was to help teach inmates job skills that they could use on the outside. These programs also helped inmates express their creativity and give them a sense of purpose. Right. And Cook County isn't the only facility with a recording studio. Possibly one of the earliest examples of a recording studio in prison is East Jersey State Prison. In the 90s, a group of inmates were able to use the prison's recording studio to write and record multiple albums and music videos under the name Lifers Group. In 92, the group was nominated for a Grammy in the category Best Long Form Music Video. They didn't win, but it's still quite an accomplishment. And one of the most famous examples of using a prison recording studio is Ear Hustle, which was the first podcast created and produced from behind prison walls. And they feature stories of the daily realities of life inside California's San Quentin State Prison. So that was sort of an aside, but we're going to get back to the prison system later. And I'm going to listen to that podcast. Yeah, it's really good. And they did a crossover with Criminal. That was awesome. They've done oh a couple God. episodes with them. So good. Great. Everybody should listen and we can chat about it in the Facebook group. For sure. So now we're going to go back to Brandon. While going through the restorative justice program, Brandon continued his education. In 2017, he earned a bachelor's degree from the University of Maine in liberal studies with a concentration in the Holocaust and human rights studies. Then Brandon enrolled in George Mason University School of Conflict Analysis and Resolution, making him the first Maine inmate to enroll in a graduate school program. When it came time for Brandon to pick a thesis topic to study, he decided to further study what he was learning in the restorative justice program. He wanted to learn what the criminal justice system can do to better help offenders get to a point where they can take responsibility for mistakes they made and work on fixing them. Brandon believes helping prisoners change their narratives will help curb recidivism. Brandon's thesis study was approved, and Brandon interviewed inmates to find out what part of being incarcerated affects their identities and their ability to re-enter society. Because remember, that is the ultimate point, right? So he studied these themes in these stories to try to understand how stereotypes, shame, and humiliation affect an inmate's self-narrative. Because you have to remember, just from a human perspective, like you need to have a purpose, to, to give a shit, to follow laws. You know what I mean? And if if your inner narrative is so beaten down by the mistakes you made, like you have no, you have no motivation to try to improve. So it's a very complicated issue. Brandon determined that if those things were barriers to reentering society, then they would need to be addressed for an inmate to truly be rehabilitated. In March of 2020, a few months before he was set to finish his master's, Brandon was the first inmate in the state prison to ever be accepted into his university's PhD program. But there was a problem. The program didn't have a remote option, which put Brandon in a bind. You see, in Maine, there's no parole system, which means an offender cannot be released early ever. Basically, whatever sentence an inmate is given is what they serve. And in Brandon's case, that was 17 years. And an interesting fact is Maine was the first state to abolish discretionary parole. Since Maine's 1976 decision, 15 other states have done the same. Okay, so I truly did not know that there were states that did not have a parole system. Like, mm -hmm. I thought I thought it was just part of, you know, system. State. Yeah, I was like, there's, everyone has parole. Like, every state, it's part of it. Like, everyone, there's a parole board. But, you know, and you wonder if it was abolished in certain states just like for something as trivial as like budgetary reasons like who knows yeah. i mean yeah. it could be it could be budgetary reasons it could be could have been a a case that got a lot of attention where a parolee got out and then might have murdered somebody and then they were mm -hmm. able to get those votes uh it could be a bunch of stuff 
could be like a tough on crime um, yeah. sort yeah. of politician who decides they're going to do away with this as sort of a something to ride and during a campaign yeah. trail. Who knows? It's it's so interesting. So Brandon had no chance of parole. And Maine House of Representative Jeff Evangelos, who volunteers at the prison where Brandon was housed, suggested to Brandon that he should apply for clemency. Now, this is really Brandon's only shot if he wanted to proceed with his PhD program and, and get out. And in Maine, clemency is a general term that refers to the power a governor has to grant a commutation of sentence or a pardon. Commutation is a partial or full reduction of a sentence, while a pardon officially forgives the person of the crime. Now, Representative Evangelos told Brandon he'd help him apply, and since Brandon had exhausted all of his other options, he accepted his help. Okay, but before he actually moved forward with this clemency application, Jeff Evangelos did something really important. He contacted Brandon's victim, James Sanders, to see how he felt about this, because his feelings about this are important. Because James is the one who had his ability to walk taken from him, and the residual impact of that is immeasurable. So when this letter was sent to James asking for his thoughts on Brandon's clemency application, this is quite beautiful. James actually said that he was not only fine with Brandon applying, that he would support his plea for clemency and write a letter in favor of his commutation. And like, I am kind of moved by that because I'm like, yeah. I'm petty as fuck. I don't know that oh, like... stupid shit. <laughs> I'm not that petty. Um, <laughs> no, you, but like a normal person is pretty petty about like pretty petty shit. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Oh, I think it puts a lot in perspective when we're talking about you losing your ability to walk. I think you're like, I think someone's spelling my name wrong in a Starbucks cup. I can get over that. You know, it's like you start yeah. to really realize and it, it almost makes you feel like James Sanders has a perspective we can't understand based on what he's lost. And I think, right. I think people who've lost a lot have are more grateful for things that privileged people don't even understand, you know? And I see privilege in like walking the privilege James no longer has. So in addition to James, Brandon also had 10 other supporters and these included a district attorney, professors and academic administrators. Evangelos and Brandon officially submitted the application in January of 2020. And by this point, our first degree Carly was following Brandon's saga through the news because Brandon's story had garnered a considerable amount of media coverage. I think for me, the the thing that was the most telling was just the fact that Jane Sanders supports the clemency request. To me, I was just like, that's really telling. I think the fact that the person who is directly harmed by Brandon's actions has looked at what Brandon has done and has kind of made that judgment of like, okay, you're right. Like, I think I would support this. It seems like you've you really worked hard to rehabilitate yourself, which for me, that like I think that's just an incredibly selfless thing to do, to be okay with maybe potentially allowing someone who caused you so much potential harm to support them just like that. After looking over Brandon's application, the board recommended a meeting. But before the meeting could take place, the probation and parole board had to conduct an investigation into Brandon. Now, another part of the process included Brandon making several statements in writing, including writing out his life story from birth to the present, and also his version of what happened during the shooting. Brandon wrote the board about how suffering an injury in high school led to his life spiraling out of control. He talked about how carrying a gun gave him this false sense of power, and how he adopted the tough guy attitude. But when it came time to talk about the crime and what happened on June 24, 2008, Brandon's version of events differed from what was said at the trial.
This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. You ever meet someone who seems kind of off? Whether it's a creepy neighbor or random phone number that keeps calling you, Truthfinder has you covered. You can search for people by name, address, phone number, email, and more. Truthfinder can be especially helpful for running confidential background checks on anyone you're planning to meet from online dating apps. Go to truthfinder.com slash podcasts for a special offer. That's truthfinder.com slash podcasts to access your special offer today. The board had selected Brandon's application for clemency, and he was asked to write out what happened on June 24th, 2008, when James Sanders was shot and left paralyzed. And this time, Brandon's version of events differed from what was said at his trial. Brandon said that at around midnight on the night of June 23rd, he was having a drink with a friend at the Cactus Club. They were waiting for pizzas to be delivered. A group of people they didn't get along with came into the bar and, quote, things became tense. Brandon went to his apartment above the bar, grabbed his gun, and went back down to the Cactus Club to wait for the pizzas. One of the group members confronted Brandon's friend, but the friend ran him off. Then other members of the group went outside. Someone threw a cigarette at Brandon, and when he turned to see who threw it, he was tackled. He was held down, and he was kicked in the head. When he got to his feet, Brandon grabbed his gun. He saw his knife on the ground. Lord knows why he was holding a knife in the first place. But anyways, between him and who he now knows to be James Sanders, that's where the knife was sitting. So Brandon says he was scared. And at this point, he points the gun at James. And Brandon admitted that what he was about to say differed from what he said at trial. He said that his attorneys told him to emphasize that he saw James, quote, lurch for the knife. And Brandon said that he didn't want to do that now. Instead of saying James lurched for the knife... Brandon said he remembers having no emotions. He said, quote, I do not recall feeling fear. I do not remember feeling anger. I was numb. I saw James. I saw the ruckus behind him, felt the gun in my hand as I pulled it out, saw the knife, chambered the round, pointed the pistol, saw James's angry facial expression, saw him make a movement, and then fired one single shot at him. I did not have any intention of shooting Mr. Sanders in a specific spot. I had no desire to end his life. I had no intentions or desires at all. I simply pulled the trigger at the moment. According to the Portland Phoenix, Brandon went on to write that he now realizes, quote, the lifestyle he was living created a mentality that didn't allow him to walk away from conflict. He said, when I reflect back about how that has happened, there are a million better ways that it could have turned out. And I wish in hindsight that if I really was afraid of something happening, instead of getting my gun that night, I would have just stayed home. I think it's really interesting because I've heard other people who have shot people describe like this like numbness when they pull the trigger. And I think it's a residual impact of just the casual nature of weapons sometimes. Like Mm -hmm. if you have a bunch upstairs, you have one on you all the time. It just becomes the magnitude of it. He was also 21 years old. Like he doesn't understand long-term consequences. 
brain's not fully developed till 26, right? Like it was low. He has no impulse control. He had, he was, and that's the danger of carrying a fucking gun on you. Like people's tempers flare up and you shouldn't have yeah. the option to exercise it in that way. If you punch someone in the face, cause you have a bad temper, you're not going to fucking ruin your life or you could, I guess, paralyze a person, but way less likely than if you shoot them. Yeah, the chances are a lot lower. And yeah, the impulsiveness of somebody, it's like that really, it could change your life forever for this split second decision that, I mean, I do think it is commendable that he's at least taking responsibility of his actions in that very moment. Because obviously when he was at his trial, his lawyer was probably like, oh, you need like a reason why Mm -hmm. you shot the gun. And now he was just like, there really wasn't a reason. And I just did it. And I felt nothing. At least he has that, that he's learned and processed how he was feeling since the incident happened. And how it happened, you know? Yeah. So on April 9th, 2020, the governor's board on executive clemency met to consider the request. Everything was hanging on this decision. Brandon told the board that he was uncomfortable saying he deserved to be released, but having his sentence commuted would let him attend the PhD program. Associate Professor Patricia Malden, who was Brandon's mentor at George Mason, said that Brandon had the potential to do important work in venues that few others could or would access, with individuals often forgotten or undeserved. Many people testified in support of Brandon's release, but there were some people who opposed it, and those people were James's aunts, Diana, Catherine, and Lynn. And they had some valid arguments, too. They said that while James supported Brandon's release, they wanted everyone to know just how much James had suffered as a result of this shooting. They said that James had gone through pain, depression, addiction, bouts of infection, and hospitalizations that they didn't think that he would survive. And all that's fucking valid. Again, like I still am troubled. Like if someone shot me and took away my ability to walk, I don't know how much time would be enough because I'd be like, Who's to say how much I would have been able to accomplish, how much money I could have made, like how I could have changed the world. And like, how do you punish someone? How do you measure what's appropriate? It's, it's kind of a mind fuck. And James's aunts told the board about the injuries that James suffered. And they said that the shooting quote, mutilated James body. There was a part of his abdominal muscles that had to be removed after an infection that he got after the shooting. And in addition, one of his legs was amputated and the other couldn't support weight. He had a prosthetic leg, but he couldn't walk on it. It was just, he wore it to look like he had two legs. And the aunts talked about following his release from the hospital. James had to move to Atlanta to live with his aunt Diana. And he wasn't able to move into a place of his own until mid-2009. They said that while James can live by himself, he needs help with certain tasks like doing laundry and going grocery shopping. James' aunt Catherine told the board that, quote, the only reason why James is alive today is because he does have resilience, because he is a Marine, and because he fights to stay alive. Catherine said that James didn't want to accept weakness. So he started weightlifting and working out. She said that in 2016, he was even able to compete in a Spartan race obstacle course. And we're looking at this picture of, of James from the Spartan race. And he looks really badass, actually. I'm right. He's fucking jacked. I'm like, I have, I'm, I could never be this fit. <laughs> like, I can't imagine the perseverance, you know, and I really admire it. Yeah. So the aunts weren't done speaking. Aunt Lynn also testified, and she said that if Brandon had ever said he was sorry, which means that Brandon to this point hadn't said he was sorry, which is interesting. But if Brandon had said he was sorry, they may have had an easier time letting this go. But they worried that Brandon is just saying what he had to in order to get out early. So Brandon was actually able to respond to Lynn during this hearing. And he said that he wants to apologize to James, 
in that sorry would never be enough. And he said, I consider myself to be somebody who can compose words in a way that means something. And that makes people understand what I'm feeling or what I'm thinking. And this is the one thing in my life that I don't think there are words for. I don't believe there are words to convey my sorrow and remorse and my acceptance of responsibility of what happened. And it's unclear if Brandon will ever get the chance to convey these things because he's not allowed to contact James per court orders. So that may explain why he's never received an apology. One of James's aunts also argued to the board that Brandon didn't just cause pain to James, he also took away his career opportunities. Before the shooting, James had applied for positions to work with the FBI, the CIA, and the U.S. Marshals. But now he couldn't work due to his pain and the limitations that his body had. As a reminder, Brandon was given 17 years. So the question is, is that enough? And would that be enough if you were James, given what he's lost? We asked Carly what she thought about Brandon's sentence. I have a hard time thinking that perhaps one event could be the event that defines somebody for the rest of their life. Like, I do think people can change and improve themselves. And it's so hard. I just think like, there's so many circumstances that are leading up to like, you know, what was that person's exact state of mind? And then are they remorseful for what they've done? But at the same time, if it were me, I'd probably be really, really just bitter and you know, be totally life-changing. Following the hearing, the governor's board sent Brandon's application on to the governor. And you know what, though? Despite all of Brandon's accomplishments, Governor Janet Mills denied Brandon's request for clemency. And the decision shocked onlookers. And the representative, Jeff Evangelos, would later be quoted to say, if Brandon Brown doesn't qualify for clemency, then no one ever will. And Carly said it best when she said, with what Brandon has done so far and like what he is trying to do. It seems like if anyone should be granted, you know, clemency or for anyone should get the, have the ability to be paroled, he seems like the type of person that should, should have that to be able to continue his work and help continue to be a productive person you know, outside of prison instead of uh, within the prison walls. Brandon's accomplishments behind bars, in addition to the governor's clemency denial, started many important conversations. The most important one was about rehabilitation. Clearly, Brandon was the poster child of how rehabilitating an inmate is possible. So why didn't the governor commute his sentence? Especially if there was evidence that Brandon was motivating other inmates to apply themselves and focus on building productive and fulfilling lives that could be lived outside of prison walls. Why wouldn't the governor want Brandon to continue his studies at the doctorate level? It's almost like the governor doesn't want to improve the prison system in her state. Rehabilitating prisoners isn't some fairy tale that can never come true. And the government knows this. In 2007, the U.S. Department of Justice reported that facilities that incorporate cognitive behavioral programs rooted in social learning theory have the lowest recidivism rates. If that study wasn't enough to convince lawmakers that rehabilitation works, they could just look at the many countries who are successful in rehabilitating their own prisoners. In Sweden, officials believe the punishment of prison is not suffering, but instead is being deprived of your freedom. Inmates don't need to be punished any further than that. They look at inmates as people with needs who deserve help and assistance. The Swedes have found that most prisoners suffer from multiple issues, drug and alcohol abuse, and mental issues. And these are problems that didn't appear overnight. They want to address all of the inmates' problems. Their goal is to release them back into society in better shape than when they came in. The Swedish prison system seems to be working. Their recidivism rate is 40%. In Denmark, there are some really interesting prisons. One of them is a 75-acre large Halden prison, 
where the focus is maintaining normalcy. There's no bars on windows. Kitchens are fully stocked with tools and knives and guards and inmates foster friendships. This is fucking strange. This sounds like a fairy tale. Like, (laughs) you know, their main goal is to prepare inmates for outside life with things like vocational programs. It's clear that Denmark knows how to run a prison system because their recidivism rate is one of the lowest in the world at 20%. And I just want to mention, though, here, too, we have these prisons in the U.S. It's for white-collar criminals. They call them club-fed, and they're mm-hmm. like summer camps. And, you know, I don't know that they have knives floating around, but it's pretty normal. They're not worried about violence in some of these prisons. So we have that here. It's unclear whether they're effective or not. So in India, the Indira Gandhi National Open University set up 94 study centers that offer a range of educational and vocational classes. And as of May 2015, more than 25,000 prisoners have been able to obtain anything from vocational certificates to master's degrees. And when inmates are released, the university helps them find jobs. And what's India's recidivism rate, you ask? Less than 8%, which is fucking crazy. That is crazy. Honestly, like, it's very clear that we're doing something wrong. And I've got some sobering statistics about the prison system for you. So... We all know, I mean, I think it's pretty common knowledge that there's issues with the U.S. prison system. But in the United States, we have 1.5 million citizens, at least, behind bars. That's a fucking lot of incarcerated individuals. The U.S. has an incarceration rate of 426 per 100,000. And that's the world's highest known rate. Like, for a country that has so much wealth and power, like, we're doing something wrong. And presumably this is because many prisons are... for profit. They're run by private companies who are making a profit on them. So there's incentive to keep people behind bars. So after the US, we've got South Africa and we've got Russia. They follow us in incarcerated individuals. And it costs $16 billion a year to incarcerate the inmate population that we have here in the US. And obviously, all the fucked up things that happen in prison disproportionately impact people of color due to the various racist and oppressive implications that exist in our criminal justice system our police, you know, system and the prison system, of course. Now, some lawmakers want to change this, like the main rep, Jeff Evangelos. He sponsored a bill to reestablish parole. He said he believes in second chances, at, which is what this bill would provide for prisoners. With the reinstatement of parole, inmates could go before a parole board and make their case, demonstrate what they've done with their time in prison, and can talk about how they plan to contribute to society. As of right now, both the Maine Senate and House have agreed to create a commission to examine if they should reestablish parole. But in the meantime, Maine has already made amendments to at least one part of their prison system. Right. And we're nearing to the end of our episode, but we have to tell you that something really fascinating happened while we were in the midst of researching and putting this episode together. So the purpose of this episode was to highlight the fact that Brandon had been denied clemency and whether or not there's a problem with that. But our plans changed when a plot twist occurred because on October 18th of this year, 2021, Brandon, now 33, was released from prison due to changes in eligibility for the supervised community lockdown program, which is fucking crazy. Like, you know, Haley, our new writer and researcher, texted me this and I was like, are you fucking kidding me? Carly didn't even know. So I got to text her and tell her and she was thrilled. And, uh, This was a really exciting development. We did not expect it. We expected him to still be in jail upon this episode's release. And that, you know, good news, good news. If if you're in the camp that thinks he should have been released. And while his release is definitely positive, Brandon still can't attend the PhD program due to the program's travel restrictions. But Brandon says that he feels good. 
He told the people who showed up for his release, quote, I have anxiety, but in a good way. It still doesn't feel real, but I think it will be when we leave. Brandon plans to live in the Bethel area near his dad, and he's already been considered for multiple jobs, including one with the Department of Corrections. We asked Carly what she has taken away from everything. My takeaway is that I think it's possible for somebody to maybe become a genuinely good person and become a productive person, even if they maybe haven't been previously. It's time to shift our perceptions. People aren't all good or all evil, and there can be a version of redemption for a near-fatal mistake. James Sanders will never be able to walk again, and his life was completely and unfairly derailed. But we're not living in an eye-for-an-eye society, and if Brandon Brown and others like him can do enough good in the world and prove their rehabilitation in so many different ways, shouldn't we allow them? Shouldn't we reward it? And shouldn't that be encouraged? Like we said, we tell you a lot of stories about bad guys and gals going to prison, but there are also good people in prison who took a wrong turn, who are from oppressed communities, who were born into circumstances outside their control, which put them on a trajectory towards criminal activity. Sadly, the United States prison system has become so obsessed with making prisoners suffer that they've lost sight of what's important, and that's rehabilitation. you to Carly for being our first degree today on today's episode. If you are out there and you have a story to tell, please email us hello at the first degree podcast.com. No story is too small or, you know, I feel like today's episode was a little bit different type of an episode. So if you are thinking you should email us, you should. You can join our Facebook group, search the first degree up on the search bar on Facebook. We are talking true crime all the time. And remember, only you can prevent serial killers and keep your friends close. But not that close happy sammy day mm. oh my god i'm going to get a jersey mic turn god i want that shout out to jared monaco for scoring original music for the first degree a big hello and a big welcome to our wonderful new writer Haley gray we love you thank you i needed you additional producing for this episode courtesy of caitlin cleveland sources for this episode are the portland phoenix six park news banger daily news the sentencing project the prison policy initiative the Bookings Institution, Inui Magazine, Take Part Magazine, Business Insider, The Guardian, News Center, Maine, The Chicago Tribune, and as always, our first re, Carly, was our biggest source. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.